knowledge, a little bit about a whole lot. My name is Stephanie, and I'm excited to bring to you this next episode of Trivial Knowledge. Today, we are going to learn all about Gaelic football and then discover one of the leading Russian artists of the Russian symbolism movement. But before we start, here's a little bit of background for those listening for the first time. Each podcast episode brings you a weekly dose of knowledge from five different topics drawn from four broad categories. And to add to the fun, one topic will be acquired from a random Wikipedia page. With such an extensive range of topics, there's going to be something here for everyone. If you enjoy this episode, please subscribe to my podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Now let's dive into episode 34, From Gaelic Football to the Victoria Falls. Social Sciences Born Victor L.P. Dioforovich Musatov, but as an artist known as Victor Borisov Musatov, he was one of the leading artists of the Russian symbolism movement that swept through Russia in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. Borisov Musatov was born in April of 1870 in the Russian city of Saratov on the Volga River upstream from Volgograd. Not much is known from his early life, other than his parents were former serfs of Imperial Russia. His father, Musatov Elpidefor Borisovich, was a minor railway official, and his mother's name was Evadokia Gavrilovna. As a toddler, he fell off a bench and it was originally thought that this injury led to his struggles with kyphosis the rest of his life. Kyphosis is where the spine curves outward, causing hunching of the back. Some scholars, though, now believe that his kyphosis might have actually been caused by spinal tuberculosis, which is also known as Pott's disease. It wasn't until he was 14 years old and had entered the Saratov Real School that his artistic talent was discovered. He spent six years studying at the school before moving to the Moscow School of Painting, Sculpture, and Architecture, where he studied for a year. At 21 years old, he transferred to the Imperial Academy of Arts in St. Petersburg, which was the premier academy of the time. Unfortunately, due to his health, he wasn't able to tolerate the climate in St. Petersburg and moved back to Moscow to finish his training. Some of his paintings that he completed during this time included May Flowers, which depicted two young girls playing in a yard with a ball and surrounded by beautiful white blossoms flowering from the trees and shrubs. His teachers at the time gave him negative feedback on this painting and pointed out that Borisov Musatov didn't differentiate between the girls and the apple trees in the painting. His fellow artists, though, thought it was full of potential and in the end would help lead to a new artistic movement. During this time, he also completed an oil sketch of the Caucasus Mountains, which he had visited and used for inspiration in this painting. Finishing up his studies at the Moscow School, he then moved to Paris in 1895 to study under Fernand Corman at his art school for three years. While in Paris, he was influenced by French artists Pierre Pouviste Chavon and Berthe Morisot, two leaders of the French symbolism movement. During his studies, he also found time to visit the Louvre frequently, especially admiring the works of Botticelli. 
During the summers, he would return to his home in Saratov, which would be the inspiration for many of his paintings during this time, including Autumn Motif, Harmony, and an Untitled Motif. A quote from an article posted in April 2020 by Olivia Croth on her website entitled The Short Life of Russian Painter Viktor Borisov Musatov describes the autumn motif painting as, in quotes, The painting clearly depicts the mood and tone of a place under autumn, particularly the foliage. There is a hint of nonchalant and longing, as though the painting was a sad poem dedicated to someone who had been long gone, end quote. He also became enthralled by the agave plant which had been brought from the Americas to Europe in the 16th century, and this plant would feature in several of his paintings around this time. Upon completion of his studies in Paris, Borisov Musatov returned to Russia, and his paintings began featuring wealthy ladies on imaginary country estates. One of his most famous paintings was completed in 1902, entitled The Pole. It portrayed his sister Yelana Musatova and his fiancée artist Yelane Alexandrova in front of a pole on a fictional country estate. A painting from 1903 entitled The Phantoms showed ghosts on the steps of an old country manor. Borisov Musatov would become a member of the Union of Russian Artists in 1903, the same year he married his fiancée and moved to a town located between St. Petersburg and Moscow. He would also go on to be one of the founders of the Moscow Association of Artists, which was a progressive artistic organization in Russia. His career was cut short, though, as he would die at 35 years old of a heart attack. His works would go on to become even more popular after his death, and he would be best known for his role in the Russian symbolism movement. Sports and Entertainment Today, we are going to Ireland to learn about one of their native sports called Gaelic football. Gaelic football has had quite an up-and-down history, at one point almost disappearing, but today it is back and as strong as ever, and while it is still mainly played on the Irish island, many countries have their own league and teams as well. To talk about the history of Gaelic football, we first need to go all the way back to 1829 BC and the Teltine Games, which were named after the Celtic goddess of the same name. The main attraction of the Teltine Games were the Irish sports played during the festival. The games occurred annually during the Feast of Lunacha for nearly 4,000 years, finally ending around 1169 AD. But while the festival may have ended, the Irish sports that took part continued to evolve. The history of modern-day Gaelic football begins over 700 years ago, dating back to the 13th century, and got its start from the rough-and-tumble sports played at the time. The game was first seen in Irish records in 1308, when a man by the name of John McCroken was a spectator at a match in County Down, Ireland, and is said to have accidentally stabbed a player. Now, I'm not sure how that could happen, but it is proof of a version of Gaelic football being played at the time. As the sport continued to evolve, there are historical references of cross-county marathon matches involving hundreds of players where violent exchanges were the norm. This type of Irish football was called Cade and took its name from the horsehide or oxhide ball that was used. 
Even up to the 1800s, these games of football were played involving hundreds of people over miles of open countryside. By the 17th century, the game, which had been looked down on by the ruling class at one point, now found itself supported by that same class. Landlords even organized games with other landlords where the tenants would play against each other. Irish football was banned in 1695 as part of the Sunday Observance Act where people caught playing sports on Sunday could be fined a shilling, a substantial amount of money at the time. But the ban wasn't very effective, and the game continued to grow in popularity, especially in the rural areas. It wasn't until the 19th century, though, that the game came under a true threat. First, the introduction of the English sports of rugby and football were introduced in Ireland, and rugby especially became very admired, and Gaelic football was played less and less. What finally almost did the sport in, though, was the potato famine of the mid-19th century, with mass starvation occurring throughout Ireland. People's focus shifted, understandably, to surviving, and the country suffered economical and emotionally. But within a decade of the famine, people again turned to Irish football and other Gaelic sports to retain their heritage. At this time, there was no national organization guiding these sports, which was sorely needed. This is where two Irishmen, Michael Cusack from County Clare and Maurice Stavin from Waterford, who was also the most famous Irish athlete at the time, founded the Gaelic Athletic Association in 1884. The mission was to develop and promote sports of Irish origin. Three years after its establishment, Gaelic football was finally codified and had official rules to play by. So now that we know how Gaelic football came about, it's time to learn how it is played. The sport is played on a field that is about 130 to 145 meters long by 80 to 90 meters wide, which is larger than a typical soccer pitch at 105 meters by 68 meters. On each side of the field are H-shaped goalposts with the bottom half of the H closed off by a net. A team is composed of 15 players lined up in five lines consisting of defenders, middle defense, midfield, offensive midfielders, and strikers. The ball is round but heavier than a regular football or soccer ball and is encased by rectangular bands similar to those found on a volleyball. The game is typically played in two 30-minute halves and in case of a draw, extra time may or may not be played or the entire match may even be replayed as well. There are two ways to score. The first is to kick the ball over the crossbar to score one point, and the second way is to hit the ball into the net, which is worth three points. Unlike in soccer, players are allowed to run with the ball in their hands, but for no more than four steps. After four steps, the player must perform what is called a solo, and unfortunately that doesn't mean singing a song, which could make for a very interesting game. There are two types of solos in Gaelic football. The first is the toe tap, where the player drops the ball onto their foot and then kicks it back into their hand. Players can perform this solo consecutive times. The second type of solo is the dribble, which is like a dribble in basketball, where the player bounces the ball off the ground and then back into their hands. Unlike the toe tap, the player cannot dribble two consecutive times and must do a toe tap in between. Once they perform their solo, the player may then take an additional four steps before performing another solo. 
The player can also pass the ball either by kicking it downfield or using a hand pass for shorter distances where the ball is held in one hand and then hit from below with either an open hand or fist. Physical contact in this sport is actually strictly regulated, tackling is prohibited, and only shoulder-to-shoulder contact is permitted. The biggest sporting event in Gaelic football is the Inter-County Championship where teams from all 30 counties in the Republic of Ireland and Northern Ireland play for a spot in the All-Ireland Finals, which takes place yearly at Croke Park, where all finals have been held since 1895. Gaelic football is an easy sport to learn the rules for, yet an engaging one at the same time. If you ever find yourself in Ireland or a place that plays Gaelic football, I would recommend catching a match. Science and Technology Today, we are going to talk about the Wireless Experimental Center for our STEM topic, which was used by the British during World War II. The Wireless Experimental Center was one of two overseas outposts of Station X, Bletchley Park, with the other outpost being the Far East Combine Bureau. It was a British Signals Analysis Center, also called 164 Signal Wing Royal Air Force during World War II. It was located in Ramhas College, formerly part of Delhi University campus, and sat on a hill called Anand Parbat, the Hill of Happiness. It was staffed by over 1,000 people, including people from the Intelligence Corps, the British and Indian Armies, and the Royal Air Force. The outpost had three of its own outstations, including the Wireless Experimental Depot in Ababad, which monitored Russian transmission in the interwar period, the Western Wireless Subcenter in Bangalore, which was a fixed intercept site covering military operations in Malaya and further on, and the Eastern Wireless Subcenter at Barakpur. The Eastern Wireless Signal Center was larger than the Western and even had its own intelligence operations, which as one of its duties provided operational air intelligence to aid the city's air defenses. The Wireless Experimental Center was divided into five sections. Section A was Administration, Section B was Intelligence Collation and Reporting Section, Section C was a Special Intelligence or Code-Breaking Department, Section D coordinated traffic analysis, and Section E was interceptions and communications. Colonel Peter Marr Johnson led Section C from 1943, and he ran a successful but strict operation. He was commissioned into the Royal Artillery in the Army and was found to have a talent for languages. In 1932, he went to Japan as a language student and went on to also receive training in cryptography. The claim to fame for the Wireless Experimental Center was that it was the first to break a high-level Japanese army code. The code breakers were Wilfred Noyce and Maurice Allen, and they broke the Japanese army's water transport code in 1943. Geography and World Culture Today we travel to one of the seven natural wonders of the world, Victoria Falls. Victoria Falls is located midway along the Zambezi River, which forms the border between Zambia and Zimbabwe in Africa. Victoria Falls is one of the largest waterfalls in the world and is a popular tourist attraction with hundreds of thousands of people visiting the site each year. Going back through the time, let's take a quick look on how Victoria Falls was formed. 
Over 200 million years ago, the land where Victoria Falls is located was a desert with no river running through it. Volcanic eruptions began about 180 million years ago, which led to basalt being laid down in the area, creating the main bedrock of the falls. 150 years ago, tropical vegetation began to grow in the area, and 110 million years ago, Gondwanaland, the southern half of the Pangaea supercontinent, began to break up, causing cracks in the basalt. Finally, there was an uplift in central Zimbabwe, which led to the formation of a giant lake. Five million years ago, tectonic movements caused the lake to spill, and finally the upper and lower Zambezi rivers were linked, and the formation of the first Victoria Falls waterfall also occurred around this time. It wasn't until 250,000 to 100,000 years ago, though, that the current fall at Victoria Falls came into existence, when the ancient Zambezi River began flowing north to south over the cracks, creating curtain-like waterfalls in the river system. Today, Victoria Falls is over 1 kilometer in length and over 100 meters in height, with a maximum drop of 355 feet or 108 meters high. It is two times as wide and two times as deep as Niagara Falls in North America. The lip of the falls actually consists of many small islands, depressions, and promontories, which the water flows over and through. The water eventually drops into a chasm which then flows into a narrow channel, which is only 210 feet wide and 390 feet long. Spray from the falls can be seen miles away, and the noise can be heard from 40 kilometers afar. In fact, in the 1800s, the Kololo tribe who lived in that area called it Mosiotunya, or the smoke that thunders. It received its current name from David Livingstone, a British explorer who was the first European to see the falls on November 16, 1855. He named it after Queen Victoria. His men sailed the canoe he was riding in right up to his small island on the lip of the falls, now known as Livingstone Island. In his journal, he described this experience as, On the left side of the island, we had a good view of the massive water, as it leaps quite clear of the rock and forms a thick unbroken fleece all the way to the bottom. Its whiteness gave the idea of snow, a sight I had not seen for many days. Before he left the island, he cut his initials and the date into a tree. His statue now watches over the falls on the Zimbabwe side. Today, tourists can visit the falls from either the Zimbabwe side or Zambia side. Both sides also have national parks with the Victoria Falls National Park located in Zimbabwe and the Mosiotunya National Park located in Zambia. The combination of the parks and the falls achieved World Heritage Site status in 1989. In the parks can be seen cliff springers and hippopotamuses near the falls, as well as elephants, giraffes, zebras, wildebeests, lions, and leopards in the forests and grassland in the area. Visitors may also be lucky enough to see a moonbow, a rainbow at night, over the falls. Just make sure to bring a poncho and water-friendly shoes if you plan on visiting, because one thing is for sure, you will get wet. Today's random topic. Today, for a Wikipedia topic, we are going to learn about the little Karoo dwarf chameleon, which is native to South Africa. The chameleon belongs to the Bradypodian species, which name means slow-footed, and it is a group of mostly short-tailed chameleons. 
The little Karoo dwarf chameleon is about 14 centimeters or 6 inches long and lives among the trees and shrubs where it spends the majority of its life. It moves slowly, rocking backward and forward when walking. The chameleon is olive gray and can have brown-orange patterns. It has a dorsal crest that extends along the entire length of its body and halfway down its tail. It has large eyes, which move independently of each other, allowing it to have an almost 360-degree view of its surroundings. It has a total of five toes on each foot, three toes on one side, two on the other, to allow for gripping. The chameleons live in the drier regions of the Western Cape. They eat mainly insects, which they capture in a sit-and-wait method, and then ambush whichever insects cross their paths. Insects they eat include flies, crickets, grasshoppers, butterflies, beetles, and spiders. Water is also essential, and they drink it from dew and raindrops on plants. The chameleons communicate using posture, color, head bobbing, as well as showing the inside of their mouths. If threatened, they will turn dark and open their mouth to display the orange inside. When males want to gain a female's attention, he will show brighter colors, which, if the female is interested, she too will show bright colors, but if not, she will be aggressive towards the male. The females give birth after a 3-month pregnancy to live young, with 5 to 20 babies per litter, which are about 2 centimeters in size at birth. Females may deliver 2 to 3 litters per year. The babies are independent immediately after birth, able to grasp, climb, and feed themselves with small insects. They reach maturity at 9 months old, they'll likely have found their own territory before they reach that age. So now you know a little bit more about the little Karoo dwarf chameleons. And that concludes this episode of Trivial Knowledge, a little bit about a whole lot. Thank you so much for joining me. I hope you were able to take away some interesting facts that were new to you and that you can share with friends and family or at your local trivia night. If you would like to learn more about topics that you enjoyed today, you will be able to access links to more in-depth articles on my show notes blog post on my website, www.trivialknowledgepodcast.com. I still remain a little bit behind on posting these, but hopefully by the end of this year, I will be all caught up. If you have questions or would like to leave comments about today's episode, please email me at trivialknowledge5 at gmail.com or contact me via social media links on my website. And if you've enjoyed this episode, please consider sharing it with your family and friends. I look forward to our new adventures next week when we will learn more about American inventor Bula Louise Harris and much, much more. I will end this episode with a quote from Anna Menor. Sharing will enrich everyone with more knowledge. Join me next week to learn a little bit more about a whole lot.